Well, here we go. Good morning again. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor of the Springs here. And we are right in the middle here of our God's Not Dead series here. This video clip that you just saw was from the recently released film, God's Not Dead 2. And we are going with this film and in this series, and we are asking the great question. Who is Jesus? The question of all history, the question of the entire world, the great question. Now this clip here is seen featured in this is, is the famous author and actually detective J. Warner Wallace that was just featured. He, uh, as it says, used the same investigative process that he uses to solve cold cases. And as an atheist, applied that to what he knew about what was recorded in the, the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And after scrutinizing the New Testament, he came to believe with faith and with conviction that the New Testament documents are historically reliable. In fact, he says in the, in the film, he says, I'm not a Christian because I was raised that way. I'm a Christian because it's evidently true. Now, Wallace, Wallace chose to dig a little bit deeper into his research than I think you and I are accustomed to or even willing to research, if we would be honest with ourselves. You know, instead of getting his information from a few tweets or from watching a movie, he chose to dive deeply into research and examine truth. And honestly, as you'll see, that's just what Jesus is calling all of us to do through his word. Not simply to learn a few facts, but to actually dwell on or abide in truth. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me. And Jesus is going to say just that here. Our topic for today and what we're going to cover the rest of the day, uh, the rest of our service here, which whether or not it covers the rest of the day, I guess you'll find out. Verse 31 and 32 of John chapter 8, Jesus uh, launches us into our discussion. He says this, he says, Jesus said to the Jews and all who had believed in him, he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. God's word. Thank you. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, there is an urgency today in our culture like never before to know if we are truly, as you say here, truly your disciples. Or if we are like I used to be, God, if we're counterfeit Christians, if we're living lies, but we don't even know it because we're being lied to. So Lord, grant that today we can encounter the knowledge of your truth and see the knowledge of your truth captured by us and truly set us free and cause us to set in motion a freedom that multiplies to others. Amen. Jesus gives this bold promise here in John 8. He says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's a bold assertion. However, much like a key won't unlock a door unless it's first inserted into the lock and turned, Existentially, the truth will not set you free. It's the truth that you know that sets you free, as Jesus says in verse 32. Then he even clarifies the verse before that, verse 31. The knowledge comes by dwelling on or abiding in his word. 
So my encouragement to you in the next 20 or 30 minutes is to dare to dwell on and abide in the truth of who Jesus is. And as we examine this great question of who he is, and as we get into the truth, my encouragement to you is that you would dwell on it, that you would seek true knowledge. Now we know from last week that knowledge acquisition isn't simply an intellectual process. We must dare to process the truth of God with our whole soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions being in unity. But as it relates to our topic today and how I want to go, the direction I want to go here, we can at least agree on this though, right? That, that knowledge acquisition, though it's not totally and only intellectual, it is at least intellectual. So that leads to my big idea. My big idea, which I want to support with four other points about who Jesus is in history my big idea, the, the truth that we can examine and walk in freedom as a result of, is this. That believing in the Lord Jesus is intellectually reasonable. Simple statement, very substantive if we want to defend it though. And I'm going to ask you to work hard with me in the next 30 minutes. To work hard to acquire this truth and to see God turn this, the, the key that Jesus in believing in him as Lord, is intellectually reasonable. Now I'm going to build into this assertion for a minute before I give you my four points that uphold this. It was Mark Twain that said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Everyone say with me, garbage. Go ahead, garbage. Because, sorry Mark, but that is outright rubbish. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because real faith, as we'll see here, is not blind. See, not only has God actually given evidence for who he is by what he's made, but he's also given evidence by who he is in actual history. And nevertheless, because we have dot-coms out there and you can go to godaddy.com and make yourself feel like an expert, you see all these conspiracy websites, websites that... You could look and do a search on the internet and find all sorts of things that deny that Jesus ever existed in the first place. But historically, those ideas hold about as much water as a colander. Because virtually all historians will confirm that Jesus really existed. Whether you're an atheist or a Christian or a conservative or a liberal, Jesus existed. And the, the absurdity that we even have to say that is crazy. But let's establish that. Bart Ehrman is a uh, a professor of history from the University of North Carolina and arguably one of the greatest or or most prominent Bible critics. So he's not a a friend of the faith, of, of Christianity. And while he's a skeptic to a lot of the things about Christianity and the conclusions of of our evidence, he's not a skeptic at least about Jesus being an actual historical person. In his book, Did Jesus Exist?, Ehrman writes, I am not a Christian, and I have no interest in promoting a Christian cause or a Christian agenda. I am an agnostic with atheist leanings, and my life and views of the world would be approximately the same whether or not Jesus actually existed, or so he thinks. He goes on to say, but as a historian, I think evidence matters, and the past matters. And for anyone to whom both evidence and the past matter, a dispassionate consideration of the case makes it plain. Jesus did exist. 
So here you have a man who is hostile to, hostile to the gospel that's underscoring, maybe unintentionally, the very faith that he's tried so hard to deny. You know, at the heart of the movie, God's Not Dead 2, um, no spoiler alerts for our growth groups that haven't seen it together yet, but okay, maybe a little spoiler alert. At the heart of the movie is a storyline of this high school teacher, Grace, who quotes Jesus, who quotes the New Testament uh, in response to a question from one of her high school students in her history class. And because of this, she is suspended from her job and faces a criminal lawsuit. And as they're developing their case for how to defend her, her lawyer, Tom, comes up with this idea. He says, if, if Jesus is an actual historical person, verifiably, and if the New Testament writings, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if they record things that he actually said in history, then why can't you quote Jesus like you would Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. or anyone else who is a historical religious figure? And he goes with this assertion and this line of reasoning and he begins to build a defense for grace. And in this defense, he says, maybe if I could, if I could build a case that Jesus is a historical figure, then I can go from there and build this case. And so he's at that point given the book Man, Myth, Messiah by our very own Rice Brooks. And uh, at that point, Grace tells him, you've got a lot of reading to do. So everyone turn to your neighbor and say, so do we. See, we've got a lot of reading to do as well. See, the truth of who Jesus is in history is there. It's there to liberate But we have to choose to dwell on it, to process it, to abide in it, to examine it, to be brave and bold enough to process the information with our being. And to know the truth, to process the knowledge, and to walk in the freedom that affords from that. Now, studies have shown that this isn't really happening a lot. Alarming numbers of students that grow up in the church are leaving high school and they go to college and they're leaving the faith statistically. And at the heart of this phenomenon is the question or or doubt really of whether or not the Christian story is actually a true story or not. And that's why this movie and this topic that we're going over today is so vital in our culture. And with our time remaining, I want to look at four known facts. These are actually what we call minimal facts. These are facts that even skeptics Atheists, historical scholars can concede as truth, as historical facts. And I pray that as you examine and process the truth, that you will know that Jesus and believing in him, it's intellectually reasonable, and that in walking in that truth, you can see freedom, a greater level of freedom arise. So number one, number one is Jesus died by crucifixion. Jesus died by crucifixion. The cross is the most prominent symbol in the Christian faith, and it's probably, arguably, the the most prominent religious symbol of all. And it's a fact that almost two billion people today draw some sort of corollary between Jesus dying on the cross in history and how that relates to my sins today and tomorrow being absolved by God. The cross in my forgiveness of sins. Jesus died on a cross. Not only do all the gospel accounts say specifically that Jesus died on the cross, but the gospel accounts and early Christian writing from the first several centuries say specifically that he died on the cross under the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. And not even that, but 
outside of the Christian faith, writers who are not sympathetic to the Christian cause within the first century have also confirmed this fact. And anytime an opponent of a worldview will state particular history in agreement with what you claim, that's known by historians as a mark of authenticity. And the most famous among these is Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian who was employed by the Romans to really to, to get a handle on this whole Jewish problem that they were facing for a few centuries in Jerusalem. And he wrote in his work, History of the Jews, he wrote, When Pilate, upon hearing him, Jesus, accused by men of highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified. You see, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Another source is Tacitus, who's generally regarded as the greatest of Roman historians. He served as the proconsul of Asia from around 112 to 113 AD. And in his last work, The Annals of Tacitus, he wrote this, circa 117, 116 AD. He wrote, Nero, who was the emperor right after Jesus, fastened the guilt of the burning of Rome in 71 AD and inflicted most of the exquisite tortures on a class hated by their, for their abominations. This class called Christians by the populace. Then he explains where the Christians came from. Uh, speaking of Jesus and the Roman emperor that preceded Nero. He says, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered an extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Now, if you're going to use objective standards for what is history, the crucifixion of Jesus would be at the historical bedrock of what we know as true. Jesus, a real man, died by Roman crucifixion. Now, number two, Jesus' disciples believed that he appeared to them a few days later. The dude who was verifiably dead, a bunch of people claimed that he, the dead dude, appeared to them not dead. Now you might say, okay, how is that an assertion of truth of Christian claims? Because a lot of people believe they saw a lot of crazy things. My uncle Jimmy actually thinks that he's uh, an alien from out of space. And my neighbor thinks that she's a unicorn. And they sincerely believe what they see. Okay, let me tell you why these claims are different. They're, they're different in the amount and the type and the diversity of how their stories corroborate and to collaborate. And they're different by the implication of what it costs them in their human lives. And while skeptics won't acknowledge that Jesus actually resurrected from the dead, they will concede that his bodily appearance was claimed by the disciples and even some of his skeptics, like Saul of Tarsus, who we also know as, know as Paul, people that persecuted the church, or James, the half-brother of Jesus, who had disowned Jesus early on in Jesus' ministry, that all these people claimed that they saw the risen Christ in the days and weeks in the month following his death. And as New Testament scholar Luke Timothy Johnson stated, he says, something happened in the lives of real men and women, something that caused them to perceive their lives in a new and radically different fashion. Now, if we grant that something happened, however, we must face the still harder question, what happened? What could be profound enough and powerful enough to change timorous followers into bold and prophetic leaders? What power could transform a fanatic persecutor into a fervent apostle? 
You see, all four gospel accounts claim that the risen Christ appeared to the apostles and to hundreds of followers. In fact, even Acts and a lot of the epistles and the the rest of the New Testament give a clear and consistent claim that Jesus appeared to his disciples. It's a very clear and very consistent claim. I think one of the most lucid and most powerful points is in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul, the former persecutor of the church, writes about what was known at the time, a few decades after the the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, what was known as a creedal assertion. It was actually seen here as, as scripture already at the time. And he says this, I'll start in verse one of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you would hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, verse three, as of first importance, what I also had received. Now here goes that creed, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that's important, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 other brothers at the time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, and then appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and then to last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He's, he's giving this, this bold recollection of what was known and certified already at the time. Several appearance accounts. We know from Acts and from Galatians that he received this information directly from Peter or other eyewitnesses. And what it says here is, hey, this happened. Hundreds of people saw it. You can go check with them. They can either verify or nullify the account. It's available to you. Go check on it right now. You can go and see if they recant their faith. And you know, it was checked on. And people did share the same story. And many of them suffered death and brutal execution as a result. And no one changed their story. And you have to ask the difficult question, why is that? Why would Paul, for instance, go from being a staunch opponent of the gospel, willing to kill, to all of a sudden, he's a bold proponent of the faith, willing to die? It's very different. Now, for these reasons, even skeptical scholars will concede the fact that all these hundreds of disciples believed that Jesus had appeared to them. Now, that fact, taken in tandem with this next fact, makes this whole issue extremely gripping, to say the least. Number three, Jesus' tomb was found empty. Now, all four Gospels specifically mention that Jesus was crucified. All four Gospels mention specifically that a specific man, purposefully redundant here, that a man named Joseph of Arimathea requested the body of Jesus on a Friday afternoon that he was, he was killed from Pontius Pilate and that he put him in his particular tomb. That's important. Because we know who this dude is. We know how we can find him and track down this information, where his tomb would be. All four gospel accounts say that that same Sunday, that that particular tomb was empty. And not just that, all four gospel accounts say that women were the first one who found that tomb empty. Now, it might not seem like a real gripping fact in our day, Because we can lean on what we could take for granted with how women are seen in equal dignity. But at the time, both in the Jewish council and in Roman council, the testimony of woman could not hold up in court. 
So this idea that this story would be made up later is absurd. I mean, if you're going to watch the Da Vinci Code, it's absurd that it could be made up centuries later, and we'll get to that. But even if the story were to be made up at all, if you're going to make up a story that, that your leader died, but that he rose again from the dead, why would you mention a particular place, a particular tomb? And why would you mention that women found it and bring immediate tension to your story, immediate scandal to your story, if you're going to try to ruse people? See, this scandal further verifies the story. Jesus died, verifiably. His, his disciples believed that he appeared to them, and his, his tomb was empty. And that tomb's a geographical, historical place. When it says he was buried, there was a place he was buried. And if you're a Roman official or if you're a Jewish official and you want to disprove this whole story that's expanding and spreading and causing an uproar to your influence, if you want to discredit the story and there's a particular place where he was buried, all you would have to do is produce a body and this story would come to a screeching halt. But no body could be produced. Only an empty tomb. And this brings us back to your Uncle Jimmy and and any of these so-called new ideas about the apparent state of confusion that Jesus' disciples must have been under. I mean, there's stories like, what if they all were under a hallucination? You know, they're all hallucinated at the same time. Um, well, sociologically or psychologically, that'd be impossible that everyone has the exact same hallucination. I don't, I'm not saying that right, but they, everyone hallucinates the same. I don't think that happens. Or what if they all saw a ghost? Or maybe there was a gas leak somewhere. Um, you know, all those things might seemingly be reasonable, pointing out the state of uh, reasoning to all these people, but they actually don't matter at the point at which we see that the tomb was verifiably empty. And these folks were not crazy like your Uncle Jimmy. They were crazy in love with Jesus, and because of what they saw, they had conviction that it was true, so much so that they were willing to die for it. And no one recanted. The story remained the same and even spread. Now, the historical evidence for the empty tomb is alarming. It's decisive. And obviously, because of the implications, a lot of skeptics can still uh, not accept it. But even Bart Ehrman, for instance, we, we mentioned Bart Ehrman earlier. He originally believed in the empty tomb, but then he changed his mind. He believed in it. He was skeptical of the faith, but he still conceded the empty tomb because historically it's pretty consistent and decisive. But he changed his mind. And the change of his mind didn't come with any sort of new information or evidence. It came because he felt compelled to change his opinion to support his worldview. Jesus died by crucifixion. His disciples believed that he appeared to them. His tomb was empty and finally, number four, the resurrection was proclaimed early. Now, this is important, too, because Christianity started in the place where it would have been least likely to succeed and easiest to disprove, right in the heart of Jerusalem, three days after his very public death. And even though leading scholars will admit that the resurrection of Jesus was proclaimed early, the implication of it and how it changes the game for how we're supposed to live our life, what we're supposed to do with our body, and how we spend our money. The implication of all these things combined lead a lot of people to, to kind of be a little fuzzy about these things. 
And you see works of popular fiction rising up, like the Da Vinci Code that claim that this, this power grab came actually in 325 AD, and that the resurrection wasn't actually proclaimed from the beginning, but actually it was kind of some, a new wrinkle hundreds of years later. Now, this might be intriguing cinematically, but it is preposterous historically. The resurrection was proclaimed from the very beginning. Even here in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul would have had to have access to this information within five years of the events. And the other thing is this too, that it was proclaimed from the beginning because the resurrection is thematically central to the entire New Testament. So when you hear people saying like, oh, later after the gospel accounts were written, they added in the resurrection later. They added in the resurrection part to the Christian story. Well, that's absurd because the resurrection is the Christian story. You don't have a Christian story without the resurrection. You can't make it up and add to it because there would be nothing to add it to. The resurrection was proclaimed early from the very beginning. There are many other facts that we could get into. We don't have time to. We could exhaust them all. A lot of things that rise up that people question the credibility of the Christian story. And every time there's questions and there's honest scrutiny applied, the Christian story does just fine. I mean, there's this other one I heard of where what if Jesus was on the cross and he just kind of fell unconscious? He didn't really die. Uh, It's an actual theory, believe it or not, called the swoon theory. And there's no... I'm not going to get into that or many of the other ones, but I'll I'll tell you my honest history with all this. My struggle alone, I'm not going to just blame this on anyone else. My struggle to dig deeply into these things was because I personally had some emotional baggage with it. I mean, I was personally afraid, like, what if it's not true? And And after the first two years of going from being just a regular, perverse, religious, counterfeit, you know, hypocrite, to coming to know Jesus and having a real life change in my life, those first few years, I didn't want to touch this stuff because I was really afraid. I mean, like, what if the Jesus that I know to be true, the Jesus that I felt so close, the Jesus that uh, there's no other explanation for life. I can't explain what's wrong with me without the Bible unless it's true and, and how it can be made right unless Jesus and all the things that I read in here are true. So how could I go and, and examine these things? I know that this person has given me power to overcome my past, to overcome my lust and my perversion and to say no to my flesh and to say yes. And I know that this person has given me this amazing adventure that's way better than all the other parties that I used to engage in. And what if I go and look and research these things and what if it's found to not be true? Well, for a few years, I didn't engage in those things. And in the coming years following that, I actually started to process these things. And one of the things I realized is that Jesus is not quite as insecure about himself as I am about him. He's pretty secure with himself. And he can handle me asking honest questions. And he can handle you too. You see, the Jesus of history, past, is the Jesus of exalted present. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you can ask honest questions, the Bible can stand up to your questions And I I would even argue that your faith would be strengthened. His tomb is empty. But there's plenty of room in the grave next to my former doubts for any other false ideas that might arise about who Jesus is. Now, you remember our big idea? Let's bring that up. Believing in the Lord Jesus is intellectually reasonable. 
Specifically that he's a person in history, granted. But the way his life shows us that he's more than just a person. He is God. He is the Lord Jesus. And believing in the Lord Jesus is intellectually reasonable. But let me throw in a new little wrinkle here to this. Believing in the Lord Jesus is not intellectually reasonable only. Only. Believing in the Lord Jesus is not intellectually reasonable only because believing in him is also invigorating. Believing in him is liberating and fulfilling and transformative and purifying and revitalizing and strengthening and mysterious and transcendent and powerful and adventurous and challenging and convicting. You see, it's not just that you have to believe intellectually that Jesus is resurrected. It's that you need his spirit to resurrect you so that you and your mind and your whole being can be alive with him. Remember, we read here in John chapter 8, Jesus makes this bold promise about the truth and freedom and how it relates to you and me. And he continues to deliver on this promise. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But a few chapters later, he, he clarifies just uh, how the truth sets you free and just who he is and what else he is as well. If we go a few chapters forward to, to John chapter 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. So right here, he's, he's at least clarifying this truth part. He's saying, remember a while back when I told you that the truth would be something that you would know and that it would set you free? Well, behold, it's me. I will set you free. I am the truth. I am your intellectual satisfaction, but I am so much more. I am also the way and the life. Remember, we said that the human person consists, the soul consists of the mind and the will and the emotions. And what this is showing here in John 14, 6 is that Jesus satisfies the whole human being. And the person of Jesus alone satisfies all of you. It's saying here that Jesus is the truth that satisfies your mind. It's saying that Jesus also is, is the way that satisfies your human will. Has anyone ever heard it said, where there is a will... There is a way. Well, the problem with that is, is that we know from the Bible that all human wills are radically defiled by selfishness and disgustingness and sin. And so therefore we know that all ways lead to destruction except for this one mysterious way. This way made by this person born of a virgin who lived a verifiably perfect life, the only person who ever earned by his life a perfect consequence of that life, eternity, and this person who nonetheless was willing to trade his consequence for yours and mine. A great trade made on a cross on a Friday afternoon that we can verify in history, that he lived the life that we should have lived, but then he died the death that we should have died in our place. And because of that, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. The tomb is empty and he now can offer our death for his life. He has made a way to the Father. His truth satisfies our mind. His way satisfies our will. And finally, our emotions are satisfied because he is the life. So when you were dead in your sin and transgression, as the Bible says, Jesus came to give you life. 
And not just that, but abundant life, adventurous life, powerful life. All the other things you could live for are just silly, kids playing with mud type of stuff compared. When you were bound with lies, he came to give you truth. And when your will didn't choose his way, and in fact we know from the Bible, could not choose his way, he came to make a way for you by the life he lived, the death he died, and by rising again from the dead. The question is, will... Will you, will you take his way? Will you pray with me, please? Lord, help us to process this great and mysterious gospel that you've purchased. You purchased it from all eternity, but that you've made known in history. And my prayer, Lord, is that today you would make history by giving us the bravery to to give ourselves holy, not to a religion or an idea, But give ourselves wholly to you, our mind, our will, our emotions, all to you, knowing that you first gave yourself all to us. Lord, for those who are in here and maybe they're like I was, that maybe they go to church, they've they've been in and out of church, they, they know things, but they don't know you. They're still walking in hypocrisy. They don't know your truth. They don't walk in your way. They don't have your life. I pray that you would hear their hearts right now. And if they're ready, I pray in this very moment, you would transform them, even through a very simple prayer. You can pray this. If that's you, Lord, transform me. Make me new. Lord, I know in a moment like this, you can do just that and make history. And Lord, for all of us who are battling to process this rightly, to to weigh out what the truth is with our whole being and to walk in a new level of freedom. I pray that you would do a work of freedom through our knowledge acquisition of knowing you, of experiencing you, of feeling you and who you are. I pray that you would do a work that sets us and others free. In Jesus' name, amen. Now y'all, with a few more minutes, I want to address... uh, a few other things. If you need prayer about anything at the end of this, we're going to be available to you. But I need to address two things really briefly uh, before we dismiss. And that is money and membership. Everyone's favorite topics at the end of a sermon when you're hungry for lunch. Uh, First of all, money. This is important. You know, before I accidentally became a pastor about six years ago, I had all these ideas about what other pastors uh, did wrong and how I could totally do it better. Um, until I actually became a pastor and I realized how I stink at it myself. Um, One of the things was, I thought pastors, they just worry about money too much. Um, Well, now I oversee a church budget and a staff and I get it. And I want to talk about money for a second, specifically with us. You know, with this renovation process that we've just completed and with a few other issues in our budget, um, items in our budget, this last few months has been pressing for our church. You know, we are, as Corinthians says, we're pressed, but not crushed. It's been pressing. And in the midst of that pressure, we've seen this church rise up in some of the most beautiful and miraculous ways. And I need to tell you, you are a generous church. And if I didn't take the time to mention this right now, I'd be failing to rightly affirm you for the beauty of grace that God has expressed through you as disciples of Jesus that are consistent in this area. Uh, We made budget last month through a miraculous rise of a bunch of people. In fact, I did the math and 
we have about three to four times the amount of givers to attenders that most churches have. And in uh, most good churches, we're just, God's doing a, a unique work with us. And I want to say thank you. And if you call the Springs your home church, I just want to say thank you. And may God continue to richly bless you as you continue to participate in the life of what Ju- Jesus is doing in our midst. And that brings us to membership. I think it's no coincidence that the rise of people giving has also paralleled the rise of people actually signing up to go through our official membership process. Our revamped established process. Established encompasses a bunch of things that we used to do, but kind of consolidated into one basic effort in membership and foundation and freedom. And right now I want to call forth any remaining people uh, that weren't prayed for in our first service that have been through our October established process. I want to call you up to the platform to join me up here so that we can pray for you. If you went through Establish in October. Now, as they're making their way up, I want to uh, just remind you about what Establish is for a second. Establish is, you guys can join me up front, up here. Establish is the ongoing effort of the Springs to establish us in the faith through a focus on the Bible, spiritual freedom, and covenant membership. And it takes the form now of a four-week course uh, that we're having before our first service um, that focuses on our church and on the Bible and covenant membership. Now, our April class is full, but our May class we are, we are opening registration for. And if anyone here, uh, if you've been through our, our, sta- our membership process from years and years ago, our goal is for everyone in our church between this last October through this, this coming year to go through Establish once, Okay. And so if you want to learn more about what that is or how you can sign up, you can go to springstx.org forward slash establish to learn more. But would you, uh, would you extend your hearts and your hands to these beautiful people up here? You're beautiful too, even though you're the only dude up here. Lord, we thank you for these disciples. Lord, we receive these covenant brothers and sisters we thank you for their gifts. We thank, the, thank you that we can love you because you first loved us. We can say yes and I do to you because you said yes to us first. So we receive them. We receive their, their rich, their diverse passions and gifts. And we say thank you, Lord. We ask that you would anoint them with a great degree of power to know you and to make you known. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, if you need prayer for anything, we're going to be available when we dismiss here. Uh, if you need to submit your connection cards to the back so we can better communicate you, c- communicate with you, that's where you can also learn about our growth groups and anything else. So thank you. We're dismissed.